And again, if you'll turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 22, you know, this title, this subject, I was speaking at a meeting last night, and Andy Hull took me over, and he says, I yawn. Is this part three or four? I've got mixed up myself now, Andy. Three. Andy, you were right. I thought it was four. And I want to speak in this because what you need to see in this is the very reputation of God. I'm amazed at the many Christians have God as a our almighty Elohim, great creator, Adonai, Jehovah, Yahweh, Yahuwah, whatever these names we give him. But it's his reputation that we must, we must catch, capture, we must catch hold of. Because it's no good just having a formula. Formulas don't work. It's not a formula. It's not a, 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 a hocus-pocus spell. It's the name and the owner of that name. Who is he? What is he? And Christ himself is the embodiment of God. And when we mention his name, then it's the name is the highest revelation of God, the name of Jesus. The highest revelation given to man. We're going to look at men looking to God and then the coming of Christ, God willing. And we may need to do more. I could do this on his name for weeks and months, but obviously I don't want to weary you, but I trust that you'll get a real blessing because once you capture Christ and who he is and his name, the power of his name, then you will, you'll be elated with him. You'll be enamored by him. Revelation 22. Let's just read verse 4 for time's sake. We've read 1 to 4 and other verses before, but let's just read verse 4. This is John has a vision of Christ, a vision of his uh, kingdom, a heavenly vision. And he says of those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus, he says, and they shall see his face. And his name shall be in their foreheads. Father, we know that you're molding us and making us. You're changing us to be more like your son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray this morning, Lord, that you would fashion us to to be obedient to thy word and to come under the authority of it. We ask you, Father, in his name, that you would inscribe your word upon our hearts, that you would imprint your word upon our minds. And Lord, that you would take us up this morning in the spirit and that you would show us him afresh and anew this morning to glorify him and to worship him. We want to see his face. And Lord, and print and write, establish your name in our foreheads this morning, in all of our thinking. For Jesus' name's sake we ask it. Amen. Now we looked at quite a bit, but we don't want to do too much of a recap at all. But we looked at how men began to call upon the name of the Lord in Genesis 4 and 26. That is after Cain had killed Abel. 
and Seth is born. After this, we're told, men began to call. It gives the idea, remember Psalm 34, verse 6, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The word cried is to a cost. And it's, it's like grabbing someone by the lapels or the collars and, and looking into their face and you're crying, help me, Lord, help me. Men didn't know the Lord. They didn't know who he was. They didn't know his person. They didn't know anything about him, only what they had heard from Adam and Eve and then, of course, from Seth. We looked at how men began to call upon the name of the Lord and the name is really described, especially the word Onoma in the New Testament, where his name shall be in our foreheads. The name is used of everything the name covers, everything of the thoughts and the feelings which is aroused by the mind, by the mentioning of the said name. So whenever you think of someone's name, you know that person, you get to know that person, you know what to expect from that person. Someone's name isn't a very good name because they're not a very nice person. They're not a very faithful person. They're not a very pleasant person. Others have a, a good name because they are helpful, they're kind, they're compassionate. So it's the, the person behind the name. The name Jesus it's not that we will have Jesus tattooed and imprinted across our foreheads, but that all that he is, his reputation, his fame, his glory, his memorial, that's what the word name is in the, the, New Te- or the Old Testament. It's the word Hashem or Shem just. And the word Shem is his reputation. Men began to call on God's reputation they got, began to call on God's fame. They began to call on God's glory and on his memorial. In other words, what they had heard, whom he was walking with Adam in the cool of the day, now separated from the garden and separated from God and now physically feeling the dying in their flesh. Men began to call upon the name of the Lord. They began to accost God. Where are you? The one whom our father Adam speaks of. So whenever they began the call, there was a revival. And revival starts in the heart. And revival starts when men and women call on the reputation of God. Not on a formula. Not by placing our hands in a certain fixed position of our two fingers and doing the sign of the cross in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And that is not calling on the name of the Lord. That is a ritual. That is a man-made formula. The name of God in many charismatic circles is, oh, in Jesus' name, oh, in Jesus' name. Listen, this name is greater than that. It's not just, oh, in Jesus' name. And do this in Jesus' name. And it becomes a ritual for the charismatic stroke Pentecostal. It is not that. The name of Jesus means every time we mention his name, we should think of his reputation. When people mention his name in blasphemy, in vain ways, they're not thinking of his reputation. They're not thinking of his fame. They're not thinking of his glory. It's not a memorial in Jesus' name. It's not a memorial when they just said uh, uh, blatantly without thought that uh, whom he is and what he is and what that entails in that name. That's why when we get it right, what the name really means and who is behind and the owner of that name, we will see men and women change. We will change. First, we'll see men and women change. 
We'll see circumstances change. We'll see healing of bodies because it's his reputation. It's his name. It's his fame. It's his glory. And we need to try and rescue this from modern Christianity or, or, or even, I should say, um, uh, religious Christianity. The name of Jesus is the name which God has given to him. Shem means reputation, fame, glory, memorial. I want, want you, if you would, please, turn with me. I want to show you men who asked after his name. Genesis, please, 32. Men asking after the name of God. And I find this tremendous because God wasn't showing or telling his name. It wasn't time. Man couldn't handle it. And God gives us things step by step, little by little. Genesis 32. And just let your eye run down to verse 24. And Jacob was left alone and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. Now notice the term, a man wrestled with him. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Now, Jacob is realizing there's something different about this one. It's not just a man. It's not just a name. It's just, just, not just a man. I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. Now, he knows his name is Jacob. He knows his name is Jacob. He's asking for confession. What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be no more called Jacob, but Israel. Now, we'll talk about this at a later time. But there is the name, the name changer is a game changer. He changes the game here. He comes from Jacob the Twister to Israel. But Israel, as a prince, has died power with God and with men and has prevailed. Notice, and Jacob asked him and said, tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed them there. And he called the name of the place Peniel. Or Peniel. For I have seen God. Notice he's seen a man. Now he sees God face to face and my life is preserved. Now here's the thing when people look at the Lord Jesus Christ. All they can see is a man. A storybook man. An ordinary man. He was man. He was a fool man. Flesh, blood, and bone man, like you and like me. He was human. But Jacob catches something here after wrestling with him, and he realizes past this veil of a man, there's something greater. There's more to be had that Jacob hadn't touched on. There's more to know that Jacob didn't know. Now, Jacob has grown up under Abraham, the friend of God. You'd think that he would know more, wouldn't you? You'd think that Abraham, being the friend of God, and, and because of his faith, it was counted on the Abraham as righteousness. You would think with a mark of the circumcision that he would know all, but no. It doesn't substitute relationship. It doesn't substitute closeness or devotion with God. Because once we start to wrestle with God and say, Lord, we're praying through, and it seems as if you're just like a man, and, but I know that there's more in you. There's more to be had. There's more to be known. 
tell me your name or show me your shame. Tell me your shame is, what's your fame? What's your reputation? Show me your glory, as Moses asked. So that's what Jacob was actually, he wasn't saying, what do you call you, by the way? He was saying, what, who are you? What's your name? I can see through this uh, theophany, which looks as though he's a man. Then by the time he's finished and his name has changed, the name changer becomes the game changer. He's becoming from a twister, Jacob, a surplanter. He's taking him from an old nature and bringing it, bringing it into a new nature. And he's saying, you're Jacob, he says, but you'll no more be called. You'll not have that reputation, your shame. Your reputation, your Hashem, the name of Jacob, will no longer be a twister. In other words, God can always change the man and the woman if they're willing to be changed. God changes Jacob and says, you're willing to wrestle with me, you want to know more of me, then I have more to give you, I have more to show you, and I have more to tell you. So brothers and sisters, let us get out of the mindset that God is no more for us. Let us get out of the mindset that he doesn't want to tell us anymore, that he doesn't want to show us anymore, that we all know it all because we've only touched the tip of the iceberg. God says, come, wrestle with me. Come, spend time with me. Come, Abide with me. Come into the closet. Close the door. Come, you're wrestling. See when you're wrestling? At the start, you're full of energy. See, by the time you're finished, you're exhausted. You're exhausted. You're weary. Your flesh is wrecked. You are failing. And you realize, you know, I can't, I can't do any more of this. And then God says, no, can you see your weakness? Can you see who you are? Can you see your flesh? Can you see your inabilities? Because it's only then that God says, no, I will show you what I will make you. I think it was Charles Haddon Spurgeon one time says, all men are like pigs. They must be placed on their back in order to look up to heaven. In other words, a pig can only lift his head so far and can't get right up. And many times we must be placed, as it were, on our back in order to look to God. Before we get to that place, God says, come wrestle with me and I have more for you. I am not finished with you. And he says he sees the man, but he looks through the man and he says, there's more to you. What is your name? What is your shame? What is your reputation? Show me your fame and your, your glory. And that's the place every individual believer must get to. The place where we see bigger and greater than our 2020 vision. Where through the Spirit and the eyes of the Spirit, we see Christ is more than a man. He's more than a figure nailed on a crucifix. He's more, uh, he's more than a storybook. He's more than a, a, some sort of picture on a wall. We shouldn't have the pictures on the wall or idols. You shouldn't have them on the wall anyhow. But he's more than that. He is the living God. And we must see that he is a man in the glory. And we must see his reputation. It's his fame. It's his honor. It's his glory. It's whom he is and what he can do. Many times we just see the circumstance. We see the situation. See the impossibility. We see the no hope end of it. Instead of saying, we see you turning our eyes upon Jesus. Let's rescue him from some sort of 
of, of hocus-pocus mentality where we mention his name and hope for the best, but realize you're a God of great reputation. You're a God of great fame. And then he says to him, why do you ask God for my name? If you notice this, he doesn't tell him his name. Doesn't tell him it. Turn with me again to the book of Judges. Judges. Judges, Judges chapter 13, please. Now, we, when you go home or when you get a chance, I would advise you to read the whole chapter. <clears throat> but let me give you a brief rundown for time's sake. Samson's <clears throat> uh, mother and father. Um, this is before he, uh, he, he is born. And his father's called Manoah. And a man comes to uh, his wife and tells her off the child that's going to be born and what he's going to be like. She goes and tells her husband, and her husband says, why should he show himself to me? Look, brothers, we must understand this. Our wives are not second-class citizens. Women are not second-class citizens. You're to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, that's a tall order, but that's what's expected of God. Love your wife. Notice this. He goes and he says, I want to know. But the the man appears again to his wife. I want to know. Notice this. Judges 13, verse 17. He appears to him and says, And Manoah said unto the angel of the Lord, What is thy name? What's your Shem, your Hashem, your reputation. What's your fame? What's your glory? In other words, who are you? What is thy name that when thy sayings come to pass, we may do thee honor? And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it is secret? Notice this. He says, I'm not going to reveal my reputation to you. I'm not going to reveal my fame to you, for in my name you'll know my fame. You'll know my reputation. He says, I'm not going to reveal it to you. It's a secret. You know why it's a secret? It's not just I'm hiding it. It's bigger than that, this word. The word here for secret, if you turn to Psalm 139, Psalm 139. I'm doing this more like a Bible study this morning, but sure it's good to go through the Scriptures. Go through to Psalm 139. 
Notice this. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting, mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassed my path, my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. See the word wonderful in verse 6. It's the exact same Hebrew word for secret. It's the exact same word for secret. In fact, what he is saying here is, Lord, your, your knowledge is too wonderful. Your, your knowledge is past my finding out. Your knowledge is too great for me. Your knowledge is too deep to me. And he's saying, Lord, I can never know you. Your reputation and your fame goes way beyond anything I could ever dream up or think. Lord, you are so mighty and you are eternal. You are infinite, the great eternal spirit. He says, it's just too much for me. I can't take it in. You know, whenever the Lord Jesus is with the disciples in the upper room and he's speaking to them in John's gospel before he goes out into Gethsemane and is arrested, we think of around that time and Jesus says, I have many things to show you, but you're not able to bear them or you're not able to grasp them, in other words. If I showed you everything now, he says, you couldn't handle it. If I showed you everything now, you couldn't take it in. If I showed you everything now, you wouldn't be able to deal with it. That's what God, Christ was saying. He says, I have so many things to show you, but you can't handle it. See, men were looking for his fame. They're crying out. Manoah's going, what's your name? What is your reputation? This great God, who are you? A man appears, but it ends up, he says, we have seen the Lord will surely die to his wife. But of course he didn't die because of that. But that was the reputation. I'm going to die because of the presence of God. I'm going to die because of his fame. I'm going to die because of his glory. And men and women in the 21st century are now standing, shaking their fist at heaven and spitting venom against them. In the church, they're ordering, they're demanding Jesus with a formulized name as though he were just some puppet on a string. Like they are the organ grinder and he is the monkey to dance to their tune. And he is almighty God. It's time we had fear and reverence in the house of God again. It's time we've seen that we are simply dust of the earth, worms of Jacob. That's all what we are. We are those who Christ has lifted from the dunghill and set among princes, yes. But Christ has kept us by his grace. And we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. None of this is off our own. And who do we think we are when we stand to order God? Who are we when we get disappointed in God because he hasn't done what we wanted? The Lord says, uh, the Lord says that, that, uh, that certain vessels may, may be made a certain way. And he says, and, and who art thou to ask me why am I thus? And we start going, 
You're didn't answer my prayer. God's shaking the fist at him. I'm huffing with you. I'm not, I'm not talking to you, God, because you didn't answer my prayer. Brothers and sisters, I have had prayers and I have had them that I thought they were never answered. But listen, I've got something to tell you. In spite of all the hyper grace teaching that we're hearing in every church, God does answer every prayer, but sometimes it's no. Sometimes it's no. But when he says no, it's for our benefit. It's not because he's cruel or unjust. What's your name? I'm not telling you. I want to know you more. Manoah, show me. Show me. Why do you ask my name? It's too wonderful for you. I have many things to show you, but you can't grasp them, Jesus said. And John, the youngest of the apostles, is now on the island called Patmos, and he gets what? The revelation of Jesus Christ. Why did you not give it to them then, Jesus, or even at Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit? Because it wasn't the time. God's timing is always perfect. He's never too early. He's never too late. He's always on time. It means your such knowledge is too wonderful. It's too secret. I can't contain it. Will you turn with me as also, please? Let's go to the book of Revelation. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Would you believe it that I have four pages of notes and in these three weeks I haven't finished my first page yet? I'll come back some other time to it. The revelation of Jesus Christ. I want you to go to chapter 3. First one says, in this great revelation that none can handle. This is a literal church. It's also a church age. And it's also in all churches, uh, as in the universal church at different stages. And unto the angel of the church of Sardis write these things, saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That just means perfection, by the way. That's not our seven holy spirits, okay? I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. He said, church of Sardis, I know you have a name. You have a name that you're, you're alive unto God. Your name, oh, you're, that's the church. You're alive, oh, you're alive. Where's the church? You're a Christian. You're, he says, you have a, a, a name, a reputation that you're alive. He says, but see, really, he says, you're dead to me. Think about that. Sunday suits, shirts and ties, Sunday dress, a Sunday face is not a walk with Christ. You may come in the doors and you may go out the doors and you may have your Sunday face on and when Sunday's over, whether it's morning or night or both, you may have your Sunday face off at home. 
The Lord says, everyone sees you have a, a reputation. You're a living to me. Isn't she such a godly Christian girl? What about him? Isn't he a wonderful saint of God? Such a godly man. And the garb comes off. And the mask drops. The Lord says, but you don't fool me. The word that I'm bringing you now is not written down. All this this morning, there's like three or four lines of it I've used. It's not written down. I told you, Father, there's more to give. I felt that the Lord has led me more to give you. Spirit speaking this morning, I find it so strange because it's been a rare occasion I've done something like that. Spirit and prayer, spirit and prayer. I was crying myself. I've been seeking God myself and saying, Lord, there's certain issues that we're trying to get through and deal with and saying, Lord, what's happening? Show me growth. Show me growth. Growth in the people. And I'm saying it in some. Growth in their walk. Growth in their passion. And others, while I see growth in some others, I see deterioration. Many have a name that they're living. But you're dead. Many have a reputation that they're living. But they're dead. There's no seeking God. There's no wrestling in the place with God. There's no worship of God. There's no suffering for God. The Lord says, you're dead. He says, be watchful and strengthen. I feel this is a word of the Lord for someone this morning. Now listen. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Let me tell you uh, what's happening to me at this present second moment in time. While I'm reading that, I'm seeing myself standing there, speaking to you earlier, then up here, 
bringing the interpretation of the message in the Spirit. And I can't remember usually the vast majority of it when I bring it. These verses, I didn't mean to read them. They have just come to me, and I'm giving it as I see it. And so whenever I'm here and I'm bringing this, it's bringing me back, because I was even saying, Lord, that was strange. That was really strange. And even an interpretation for the edification of the church Yet there was a term there where the church was edified, and yet there was a church was admonished. There's a, the church was said, uh, the word says that those who would refuse him and are continuously refusing his word to obey and to yield to it, he will come upon them. I go, but Lord, this is your church. And you see, you're going to hear contradictions today in many again of the hyper-grace churches. God doesn't do those things anymore. Not if you're in Christ. You live how you like. Really? This was the church at Sardis. And God will hold us to an account. Every idle word and what we say and how we, how we live our lives for him. And here he says, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard. And hold fast and repent. Here's the church repenting. You're told, we don't need to repent. We're the church of God in Christ. We belong to Jesus. We're under the blood. We're not under the law. We're under grace. That's all you hear everywhere today. Listen, the word says, repent. Repent. Repent of how we treat him. Repent of how we have turned from him. Repent of how we have refused to obey him. Repent of how we have fallen out of love with him. Whatever it is, he says, repent. Do a 180. Turn right around and face him again. Do a 180 and fall on your face and cry for mercy. Repent. I believe this is possible that in a similar fashion in Genesis 4.26, then began men to call upon the Shem, the name of the Lord the reputation of the Lord. We need to remember, Lord, you are merciful. I'm so sorry. Fall in repentance. I will obey you, Lord. Give me the strength to do so. I am, I, 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 I am unworthy of your mercy and your grace. And repenting before him, repenting, as it were, with spiritual sackcloth and ashes under the robe of righteousness that Christ has adorned you with. Repent of it. Repent of our laziness, repent of our lethargy, repent of our worldliness, repent of our comforts that has held us back from the house of God and the things of God. Repent of all the ways we have been and all the things we have done. And repenting before him, then we're calling on his fame. You are merciful. You've shed your blood. You have cleansed me. I know, Lord, if I confess my sins, you are faithful and just to forgive me of all my sins, to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. You, Lord, are great and mighty and powerful, yet you've told me you'll love me with an everlasting love. And I'm leaning on your great truths, Lord. And I'm standing upon your great promises, O Lord. And what I'm doing, Lord, is I'm lying before you, prostrating my spirit, and I'm worshiping you, for you alone are worthy of the praise. Help me to get it right, Lord. Help me to get it right. Do you know, Shem, when Noah was in the ark, I'll say this briefly and quickly, I'll talk about it. I could do a study on it some other time. 
Noah, his wife, and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, were in the, the ark. Shem means, it's, it means it's, it's the word Shem, it's the same. It means reputation. And when God flooded the earth, eight souls were saved, it said. And Shem was one of those who came out of the ark. God had a reputation to keep because in the sin of the Garden of Eden, he says that from the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. It looked like God's seed was dead. It was gone, but God kept a line and he called it Shem. And in the line of Shem, that's where you get the word Shematic or Semitic from. And in that line, now Shemites are not just Jews. In fact, some of the Jews aren't Shemites either. That's another study. Because they're proselytes, they're converted from other uh, races and so on. Uh, but in that line, he promised that from the Shematic line, his reputation, and even though they had sinned and they had failed and they had fell and they were worthless and useless at times, they were, uh, they were idolaters, they were adulterers, yet he says in Isaiah to Israel, as a Shem, you know, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob to Israel, Israel, the 12 tribes, out of Judah would come the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's fame, his honor, his reputation was right through that line until Christ comes. And he says in Isaiah 62 that, that, that they would have a new name. And when we get to the book of Acts, it says, and the, 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 the disciples were first called uh, Christians first at Antioch. Name changing because why? We bear his name, a Christ's one. One in whom Christ dwells. A Christian. A Christ man and a Christ woman. When God says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, you won't take my reputation in vain, he says. Don't you take my reputation and my, 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 my fame in vain. This is what he's saying. But I'll tell you what it means more than just a curse or a swear word. He says, You're going to become my bride and my wife, Israel. He says, And see when you do. He says, You're taking on my name. He says, don't you let my name down. Live up to my name. That's what it means, taking the name of the Lord in vain. You live up to my fame. You live up to my reputation. You live up to my glory. You have my name as a good name. For once they see you, they'll say, well, who is this God? And that's what they did when every time Israel fell. Lord, they'll say, where is their God? And for God's sake, for God's glory, he says, for his own name and reputation, he's the one who's kept us. Have, you, have I explained that sort of? You know why I'm here? Because it's his reputation. It's his fame. It's his glory. So are you. But he says, live up to my name. The name changer is a game changer. I want to just show you a couple of verses, and that's us closed. I'm not going to say much on them. Revelation <clears throat> chapter 14, quickly, please. Tell you what, just for time's sake, move on to, move on to 17, because it'll take too long. Chapter 17. Let your eye run down, verse 4. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and decked with colors, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, 
having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication, and upon her forehead, here's another forehead, upon her forehead was the name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. This doesn't mean this is all written on her forehead either. This gives you her reputation. This is ecclesiastical Rome. This is ecclesiastical uh, false religion. A nice ecclesiastical Protestantism in a lot of it. An awful lot of it. And the abominations is their reputation written on their heads. Chapter 19. Chapter 19. Verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Notice, no one knew it but he himself. He had a name uh, because it, it talked of exactly who he was, his reputation. And he was clothed with a vesture, dipped in blood. Then it tells you his name is called the Word of God. In other words, it doesn't, it doesn't mean you call Jesus now um, uh, praise the word of God. That's not what it means. It means that he is the embodiment of all of this book and tales. He is the, the word that was with God and was God. He is the one who appeared to Manoah and his wife. He is the one who wrestled with Jacob. He is the one who came into uh, 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 Adam in the garden and walked with him in the cool of the day. He says, the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed with linen, white and, uh, white and clean. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword that it should be, sh- that, that he should smite the nation, excuse me, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he shall tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This isn't him. You don't call him just king. That's, his, that's a title of his reputation. This is Jesus in returning. He is the embodiment of God, the word of God, the, the deity of God, the fullness of God in flesh. And he is now God, king of kings and lord of lords. In other words, he's saying, this is the king above all kings. This is the lord above all lords. Unto him every knee shall bow. Unto him every tongue will confess. And then we can go back into Isaiah where Jehovah says, unto me every knee shall bow or swear and every tongue shall confess. Because he's the embodiment of God. So when we are praying in Jesus' name, remember, the name is not just another formula. When we walk in Jesus' name, remember, we are to live up to his name. The name changer is the game changer. When we get to know him in the way we should, then we will see things change. God bless his word to us. I've 